2: Hello, I'm James Harding. It's Monday the 10th of July. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting.
1: BBC in crisis is the headline as police are called in over Star accused of teen sex scandal. The unnamed... Male presenter has now been suspended by the BBC.
0: An eight-year-old girl who was killed when a Land Rover crashed into a primary school in southwest London has been named as Selina Lau. President Zelensky has thanked the United States after Washington agreed to supply cluster bombs to Ukraine. President Biden arrived at 10 Downing Street in London. Well, Mr. President, Mr.
3: President, I just promoted just <laughs> you, Mr. Prime Minister. It's great to have you back.
2: I'm joined today by Liz Mosley, Will Brown and Kerry Thomas. Welcome all. Hello. Hello. Hello there. Um, You're each going to pitch a story from over the weekend that you think is important, perhaps the most important, and then we're going to try and figure out where they're headed this week. And as I'm the editor, I'll try and decide at the end which one should lead the news. Let's start with long story short. Give us a flavor of yours first list, if you would.
0: Uh, NHS PLC.
1: Nice. Will? How I learned to love the bomb. How oh, I Learned to Love the Bomb, Dr. Strangelove. Nice reference. And
3: I'm doing Not a Perfect Day, but a Perfect Storm.
2: All right, Kerry, let's start there, because I think I know what that is.
3: OK, The Perfect Day was a very famous BBC trailer. And the question, I think, for the BBC is whether it's walked into a perfect storm with this latest row over, or latest scandal, really, over allegations about one of its, uh, one of its high-profile presenters. So let's go, what do we actually know? Well, actually, that, one of the interesting things and one of the reasons actually, I was reticent about um, pitching the story is because we don't know a tremendous amount. And what we do know comes from one place, which is the mother of the young person who has made these allegations. So what we know is that on May the 19th this year, so six, what is that, six, six seven weeks ago, um, the mother of a young person went to the BBC, claims to have gone to the BBC and asked that one of their senior presenters... Um, by all accounts, and maybe BBC, quite a quite a high-profile person. Stop sending her son or daughter cash. That was the that was the initial that was the initial ask from the mother, as far as she's told us. Then I think things seemed to go quiet for a while. So then things burst out into the open on Saturday morning when the son runs this story about a high-profile presenter and allegations that he had solicited uh, sexually explicit photographs from a young person starting when that young person was 17 again we've only got the mother's word for that and continuing for three years until now when the young person is apparently 20. But I think in the end the reason I think it's worth it's worth pitching as a story is because we don't know yet where this will sit in the sort of panoply of BBC scandals over the years but I do think we know enough already to say that the conditions are right for it to be a pretty big one because Because. well i think so i think most bbc scandals come down to this question of whose side whose side are you on bbc in the end does the bbc prioritize the interests of the institution and its presenter or does it prioritize the interests of the person who came to make the complaint or the victim whatever we end up calling this person um and i think the answer to that question in the end will determine whether the people think the bbc played this well or badly and that seems to be at the moment again we don't know enough but it seems a fairly open open question the other question the other sort of condition i think is the, the speed of the political response so you had lucy fraser the culture secretary yesterday in a way that it was hard to see as anything beyond just political weighing into this row insisting on a sort of public public acknowledged meeting with tim davy the bbc director general so the politics has heated up Quite hard and quite, quite quite hot and quite early. That's always a, a factor in how these things play out. And then finally, I think the question whether the BBC is behind this story or ahead of it. Um, traditionally, the BBC seems to get itself behind the curve on these stories. Seems very much have done that again. So so that it's it's desperately now trying to play catch up with the thing, but it feels vulnerable because of that. That it's um that it's it's lost control of the. It doesn't look in good order. It doesn't look as if it's been proactive. It's left room for people to criticize it for the speed of its response, given the gravity of the allegations. So there's a
2: temptation here for us, the two of us ex-BBC employees, to do that thing, which is get deep in the weeds of BBCology. Forgive me, Liz. Well, we're going to indulge that temptation because I, <laughs> I think it is a really interesting story – And yet I'm not sure it's the story that it's cracked up to be because, one, the BBC and particularly people in the limelight receive an enormous number of complaints, criticisms, and sometimes, you know, personal attacks, sometimes threatening attacks. So there's a a whole welter of information the BBC is going to be trying to navigate in trying to get to the bottom of which of these accusations which of these allegations is true so there's something in that May 19th to the beginning of July that that might sit in that thicket there's another issue which is how much is this a personal um crisis I. One individual who's made some terrible decisions, and we should say potentially criminal decisions, because (coughs) soliciting this this kind of imagery from a 17-year-old, someone under 18, is criminal. But whether it speaks to something much broader in the BBC, I'm not sure at all whether it does that. It may signal kind of incompetence in communication. I thought some of the statements over the weekend were really cack-handed. Who announces that you're following your protocols in 2023? That doesn't seem to reassure anyone. But I guess the thing that I just wanted to tuck into, Kerry, is you and I both think we know who this person is. Pretty much everyone putting out the Today program and the BBC thinks they know who this person is. Obviously, the people at The Sun know who the person is. So the, the real issue, I think, for anyone listening, for anyone who's interested in news is – how do you people in the news media expect us to make a judgment on what's important or what's true here when you have the critical information as it makes a massive difference who the person is to what it tells you about the culture of the BBC and whether or not it's backed itself or it's backed, if you yeah. like, the license fee payer and the listener?
3: And how and how it impacts the BBC in the end because this, the stature of that person will be
2: important to how it lands, I think. So can we just get into the privacy question? I don't understand how the privacy argument will hold, given that sooner or later you're going to be able to identify that a person who was on air is now off air. So practically, that's probably true. Um,
3: We don't know actually what arguments are being run to withhold the, the, the person's name. So I talked to a couple of people on The Sun over the weekend to try and find out why they haven't published the name, because as you say, they obviously could. Uh, and they've, they've, even they have only got theories. That decision is being held quite tight within within The Sun. So the two theories that The Sun uh, the Sun have are, first of all, is there a risk if you identify the presenter, that you identify the, the person who's made the complaint? Could there be some set of photographs out there that would, in public, that would allow that sort of jigsaw identification of a young person, which would be potentially illegal? um so that's one thing and the second thing is is that you know as you've said this story will not turn out to be the story that we think it is at the moment almost certainly is there something um is there some allegation that has gone back the other way um that's about the behavior of the the family who've made the complaint but the the, the theory at the sun is there's something maybe that goes back the other way that's um it's not an injunction it's not, not an injunction and no, no, this i mean the police are getting involved
2: Today, aren't they? No but, no, but it could still be an injunction by the presenter against publication.
3: No one, no one has mentioned uh, an injunction. So I think on the, on the privacy question, um, I, I think it, it it's starting to crumble. Yeah. Um, as you say, it seems really unlikely to hold. But even once, even once it has actually practically crumbled, I suspect the way things are looking, both the BBC and the Sun may well hold to their position if they've taken it for reasons that, that have to do with particular identification.
2: Liz, what do you think?
0: Why did the sun sit on the story for seven weeks? Well,
3: we don't know when they had it. Oh, so I see. So no, we, we know the
0: that May day family
3: it, went to the BBC on May the 9th. Oh, we don't know when they went to okay, the sun. okay, it interesting. A, it'll be a while after May right, the 19th, right. I assume. Okay. You um, would take a
0: while. Yeah. My main thought about this, observing over the weekend, uh, is a, a sort of, uh, what have we become? I just felt the sort of response on social media. You know people posting that popcorn eating I- I- image, uh, I- and. You know, oh, you know, just the, the the joke of when when a scandal's about to play out. There's a meme of someone sitting on their sofa eating popcorn, which is like, let's watch this car oh yeah, crash this happen, kind of thing. Yeah, um, and I really felt for the BBC presenters whose names were in, immediately thrown out into the public domain, who then had to come out and say it's nothing to do with me. You just think, oh, this is a really unpleasant, a horrible scenario, and um, because of what we've all experienced in the last 10, 20 years with high profile men, you know, most recently Philip Schofield, you know, we we sort of, there's a pattern now, there's an established rhythm to these stories and everybody's expecting this one to follow that same rhythm. But to your point, Kerry, we just have no idea if it is going to follow that rhythm or where it's going to go.
2: It's interesting you mentioned Philip Schofield because I think there are two things in this story that if you like bubble around in the back of the BBC brain that make it really difficult. One is very recent the prominence with which BBC News covered Philip Schofield. Yeah. So it's not in a position to say this is an individual crisis which may or may not have been handled well by BBC HR but doesn't speak to anything more broadly in BBC culture because they've spent the better part of a month reporting Philip Schofield as though it's a very significant commentary on the cultural ITV. And the other, of course, is Jimmy Savile. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy Savile was not only horrendous in itself, but a commentary on the way in which the BBC handled, quote-unquote, talent, the people on air. And so you can see the BBC getting back into exactly the same playbook, some good, some bad, some formal language, some people recusing themselves from oversight of programs, which was really problematic then. And of course, for Tim Davey, the Director General you know, he must be thinking, I've seen this, I've been a part of this. He was the one who was whistled in to be acting DG after George Entwistle uh, had to resign over the Jimmy Savile scandal. So there is so much echo here. um, And yet it may not be a story that has any of the echoes or 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 quite the same um, impact on the public's Mm understanding the bbc except for the fact that if the person involved is a very prominent presenter then there are images that are if you like in the life of the minds of the country that change when the perception of that person changes too yeah i mean it's funny
3: living through these things at the bbc i remember living there through the through the Saville episode mm. and you you know you, you've been at the bbc a long time you have an impression of the solidity of the place and then suddenly it's just wobbling all over the place. It's, it becomes an immensely kind of twitchy, unreliable, nervous kind of organization. And the same I imagine the same kind of thing will be will be happening now as they try to figure out the answer to those questions, James. And
2: the thing I think that's exposed to, which we should be honest about, is there are deep critics of the BBC in Fleet Street. When I read the coverage over the weekend, it was amazing how if you like an individual uh, failure, potentially moral by the looks, of things moral failure, but certainly and potentially criminal failure, was played into. What's the future of the license fee? What's the future of the funding? What's the future of public trust? And that happens in the press. It happens amongst politicians. And also, what's interesting amongst members of staff, there is such distrust of management. You know. You know, I've been on the end of it, yeah. <laughs> distrust of me, but distrust of other management, Th- that actually people turn on the BBC itself and it becomes a story about how it manages the crisis rather than what the crisis itself yeah. means. And people
3: are, pe- yeah, people have been garnishing their prurience with all kinds of things to make it look more attractive over the weekend. But no one's really made a convincing case yet for how this fundamentally damages the BBC on the basis of what we know yet. Mm-hmm. You know, it may get there, as you say, because of the handling and, and because, the, particularly if they get on the wrong side of the whose side are you on, mm-hmm. presenter or victim in this? But but so far, I think it's been pretty thin stuff. I
2: mean, Kerry, before we finish on this, where do you think it goes this week? Run us through how you think it plays out. <sighs> I mean, the criticism of the
3: BBC largely at the moment is about the speed of its response. And so I think um, I'm not convinced we are going to find out the identity of the presenter. I think it's, you say, the thing seems... Well, no, I think in the end, of course. In the end, of course. but But I don't know if that's going to
2: happen soon. Um... So, honestly i don't know where it goes um, just, just i can't understand how you're not going to find out the identity of the presenter because the pressure the, 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 there are obviously the classic competing interests here right between privacy and the public interest in this case you've got a third interest which is the security of other presenters so if you're the dg you're sitting there thinking i have to respect the privacy of the individual their family and obviously the individual who's made the allegations and their family. I've got the public interest, which is explaining the conduct of the organization, publicly funded and a person of prominence and power, Mm -hmm. privacy public interest. But you've also got, in this case, a whole load of other presenters who say, look, until you clarify who it is, we're all in the crosshairs of this thing, either in media terms or, or, or other. So I can't see how... It so, the tonight. answer I would,
3: is if the risk is of identifying the young person involved, then none it's of, law. Then it's law, none of that will matter. Even though that person is now 20. Even though that person is now 20, you would still be against the law to identify someone who was under 18 when, I think,
2: when this started. Interesting. Okay. Let's come back to it at the end. Uh, Liz, NHS PLC.
0: Yes, uh, this was a piece of investigative work published in The Observer yesterday, um, which revealed that the amount of money flowing through NHS individuals and organisations, so individual members of staff and organisations, from um, the companies that we lovingly refer to as Big Pharma, so Novartis, AstraZeneca, those kinds of guys, um, has doubled since 2015 to 200 million quid and grown 26% in the year 21 to 22. So while the actual quantum isn't huge, if you think that the NHS spent 17 billion on medicines and devices, they call it, in in 2022, um, but the, the rate of growth is quite something.
2: And why should that lead the news?
0: And um, so, what it tells us is the nature of the relationship, and I suppose because of the rate of growth, the changing nature of the relationship between private healthcare companies, GSK, etc., and individual doctors.
2: So I saw this story too. Mm-hmm. I was really, really interested in it. For, for the opposite reason, the Observer was interested in it. <laughs> yeah. I thought what it told us was that the Observer's thinking about the NHS is really reflexive and defensive. Actually, what's really interesting is if you have f- big pharma, pharmaceutical companies, which have huge research budgets, massive interest in the future of global healthcare, and the largest single buyer in one country or uh, anywhere in the world in one country, this one, the NHS – How much could you do in that cooperation that will really improve the quality of healthcare? Because when I read it, what it struck me was here were healthcare companies and hospitals saying there must be a better way of dealing with, say, multiple sclerosis, right? There must be better...
0: Diabetes uh, pathways, for example.
2: Correct. And I thought to myself, is it the case that a kind of doctrinaire, ideological... Some might say principled commitment to public funding, public management of the NHS misses the point here, which is, of course, you can have and have to have cooperation with privately owned pharmaceutical companies. They make the drugs. They make the drugs we all use. Why wouldn't you have more cooperation? Might I felt very much thing. the same
0: as you did um, and in my notes here, which I've made in green pen like a mad woman. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> I wrote down, you
0: know, the first thing the point I made, which is in the context of the overall budget, small, small beans anyway. Secondly, the database exists. So it, it is there in the public domain, all of this stuff. You can see who's taking money from who. So it's yeah. not like a sort of revelatory transparency story. And thirdly, I wrote, someone has to fund the NHS. So if it is big private companies, then that's a good thing. The, the, the alternative view, I guess... Is that this kind of, um, Relationship, because obviously what the drug companies are interested in is making money, of course they are. Sure. Um, the smoking gun, if there is one, that I could sort of try and piece out of the, the coverage was this brochure from a consultancy that works alongside, it kind of, you know, it sort of wrangles the deals between the protect- practitioners and the companies. Um, it has this sentence in it, um, capacity-busting programmes, so obviously you've got a long waiting list of people, everyone's got diabetes, what are you going to do about it? Capacity-busting programmes may represent the single biggest opportunity to increase sales quickly. And so in there you get a sense of what we want to do is flog our drugs, Eli Lilly trying to get their um, uh, competitor drug to WeGovi, you know the diabetes drug that everyone's been talking about. Um, they're trying to get theirs approved and this is I was just speaking to a colleague upstairs. This is it, it smells a bit like what happened with the Sacklers in the, begin, in the early days. The beginnings of, you know, um, we've got a drug, we need to create a clinical need for it, and we're going to really go out there and, and influence the medical establishment to take the drug from us and push it through but the but system. Liz,
2: I think this is so tricky because of, the, because of opioids. That's the lens through which most people see marketing of drugs, mm-hmm. the reality is is that the line is so blurred between exploitative marketing right, and the introduction of fundamental changes in care that have to be explained, um, introduced, socialized with doctors. Otherwise, the risk is, on the other side, that doctors are sitting there Sticking with old practices, which might not have good outcomes. I, I mean, I, I, Kerry, what do you think of all this? Well, I, I read this story and it was interested, and and you, you definitely do read it with the sort of
3: OxyContin ghost yeah. you, haunting your, haunting your mind. Um, I come. I thought in the end it was a story of huge amounts of smoke and no fire at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, that, was that was certainly the case. Um, I'm broadly, I mean, there are going to be relationships between the NHS and these big drug companies. Totally. Um, I'm not totally convinced that transparency is always used in a way that makes it the answer. And I was a little bit surprised at some of the relationships with the with the sort of doctors at, at, at lower level, the GPs. It's and interesting
0: the, to know that Big Pharma pays some staff salaries in the NHS. That was an interesting detail. Um,
2: if they were working on joint projects that's the thing,
0: yeah. But it seems to
2: me as though we've so long been told to worry about privatization by the back door. Mm-hmm. I think what we're witnessing is mass privatization by next door, i.e. individuals and companies saying you can have private health care. You know, you don't need to step into the NHS building, step into this building. Mm-hmm. And the challenge for the NHS, or you might say the opportunity for the NHS, is to say... Look, there are larger and larger numbers of people moving to get private health care.
1: The question is, how do we provide the best
2: service with the resources we've got? uh, Will, what do you think of all of this?
1: I agree with you. I think that's the sort of story I'd like to to focus on. I mean, just from personal experience since coming home to the UK, I've had a close family relative who has been uh, in desperate need of uh, a, a particular assessment, a dementia assessment, Alzheimer's assessment. And it took basically two years to get that done. Sorry. Um, so so it, very much I kind of, and in the end we decided to go private on certain things because it was just too long for the, for those waiting queues. So I, I mean if we're going to be looking at um, kind of, if we, I, I would love to read a, a deep dive on this kind of like how lots of people are kind of edging more towards the private sector.
2: It's so interesting though isn't it Liz? NHS coverage in the UK, I mean we're really going through it today aren't we? Yeah. BBC, NHS these kind of cauldrons of british angst that we can't figure out what to do about them and we know we certainly don't want to mm-hmm. live without them.
3: Mm-hmm. No I mean the cauldron of values isn't it really. They're those two those two institutions more than any other in this country the NHS and the BBC are sort of cauldrons of where we think british values reside. And that's why it's so tricky isn't it because this was I a value this was sort of values space Piece of, Absolutely. piece
0: of writing wasn't it and, and it, it totally was a values-based piece of writing and i and i we've talked before i think on this podcast about how the sort of characterization of the nhs as angels and big farmer as bad guys it yeah. really doesn't help anyone the nhs is quite a shitty employer so yeah. excuse my language you know <laughs> and i would like to read a lot more about that because the organization on some level doesn't work
2: i suspect we're going to come back to it hopefully we're going to come back to it at some point with one of those pieces that helps us see things a little more clearly
0: Relax
1: and think about
0: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
2: Well, anyone who brings Peter Sellers into this podcast studio is welcome. Welcome. Um, how I learned to love the bomb
1: okay so well I've gone completely um, a different route to to both my colleagues so uh, every now and then a story happens where you know something happens and you know you pass the point of no return. And last week, I think there was one such moment. The US, uh, the Biden administration uh, has taken the decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine uh, on the eve of a major NATO summit. Now, um, just for people who don't know, cluster munitions generally, um, they, they come in artillery shells or rockets or missiles. And what they effectively do is they explode above a target area and they scatter... Um, maybe dozens and dozens of smaller bomblets across indiscriminately across an area. Um, they were first kind developed in the Second World War, but they, um, they're they basically incredibly good at wiping out infantry movements, uh, attacking entrenched positions. You don't need to get a direct hit with an artillery shell. You can just kind of shoot in the air and hope you get everything. Um, now, the, the controversy of these things comes, obviously, from their innate uh, indiscriminate nature but also, it comes from the fact that they have a very high failure rate. Some, uh, For example, the ones that Russia has been u- using in Ukraine, they estimate them to have about a 40% failure rate. So what that means is these bombs don't explode. They land all over a land area. And they then um, years later, they will explode on, a, on an unlucky farmer or a child who decides to pick them up. And so we've been moving in, in the international community away from such weapons. We've, we've, um, we've, there's been slow and painful progress towards uh, eliminating weapons of mass destruction, uh, chemical, biological weapons. Uh, Just this week America also announced that um, it disarmed its entire uh, chemical weapons arsenal, uh, which is a a victory of humanity in, in, in many respects, but at the same time they're sending these cluster munitions to Ukraine. And and we've also been moving away from cluster munitions and weapons which cause lingering and lasting damage to a population. What's the international legal position on cluster bombs? So there is a in two thousand eight there was a treaty and it's signed by I think one hundred and twenty three countries, including the UK and most member states of the of the EU, um, which which prohibits their uh, any involvement, their use and any involvement in the production of them. And so since the, and the US signed to that or not? no, the US hasn't signed to that. Um, neither has Russia and neither has China and the. US actually, and between US Russia and China they have a stockpile of in the billions of these things according to the New York Times um anyway so there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of criticism of, uh, of of America's move to to send these to Ukraine and um, from from Canada from Spain from Germany even from Rishi sunak in kind of quite kind of couch terms just it wasn't it didn't kind of Very minor, kind of sat on the fence a little bit, but kind of uh, criticised the US. But the Americans will probably be sitting there thinking, well... You know, why are you trying to take the moral high ground? We're the ones who are bankrolling Ukraine's defence. The Ukrainian forces have been asking for these weapons. And um, I mean, for example, when I was in Ukraine several months ago, um, you know, people weren't really talking about F-16s. We have this fixation on F-16s. Sure, like people in Kiev would be talking about we need F-16s, we need to be able to shoot the Russian jets down. If you talk to the normal commanders on the front line, they say, I want cluster munitions. The Russians are sending kind of uh, human wave attacks against us. I want these munitions to be able to, so we don't just run out of ammunition. For, we just want to in, in, the, in How, many ways and
2: well, what do you make of the u s. argument that the Russian dud rate is forty percent and the u s cluster munitions rate is what two and a bit percent, and so therefore they're not that much of a civilian risk. Well, is, that, is that about the same kind of dud rate that you get with other kind
1: of it's bombs it's an interesting point. So my understanding is and uh, that that two point five percent rate is on v- weapons which have been freshly made. And the U.S. might be sending older products, which would have a higher, a higher, higher rate of failure. So, it's Kerry, really-
2: what do you think of all this? I mean,
3: it, it, I think it's a really interesting story because you want to know what it, it's what it means as much as what it is, isn't it? So, so what it means, I think, is that we are the West isn't arming Ukraine sufficiently. The West hasn't ramped up its artillery production sufficiently. The Russians seem to have done a better job at at, at sort of putting their economy on a war footing than than we in the West have. So in a sense it's a sign of it's a really interesting sign of it's being sort of interpreted as a kind of moral failure but actually it's a practical failure to, to to do what we need to do so i didn't know that the ukrainians were specifically asking for cluster munitions but that's probably the reason biden has sent them over is because they've just got a ton of them lying around isn't it that, that actually these are available they're there immediately they are effective and I've read, like you have, that the failure rate may be more like fourteen percent rather than rather than two and a bit. So, uh,
1: and and it is noteworthy to say that a lot of these weapons, which have ended up in Ukraine, it's actually set, it's cheaper for for, for, for the West to send their kind of their old expiring weapons to Ukraine than it is for them to deactivate them. Liz, what do you think?
0: I'm not sure I've got anything useful to add to this story. I think talking about the morality of war is not something you do on the front page of a newspaper, although it's interesting and important to think about, and if it is or isn't right to arm the Ukrainians with the weaponry that they think is going to make the biggest difference, I'm just glad it's not me that makes that call.
2: There there is an interesting issue here, which is separate from the cluster munitions, which is what's happening in Vilnius at this NATO summit and the extent Mm -hmm. to which the West talks about solidarity and being brought together by the war in Ukraine, and yet the bickering over... Swedish membership, uh, Turkey wanting uh, more aircraft, Um, the, the extent to which domestic politics is really playing out at NATO... I think it's quite striking. And this US-UK or US-EU
1: tension over cluster bombs is just part of that too, isn't it? Uh, yeah, exactly that. And for example, about who's going to be the next General Secretary of NATO. It, it, it seems like America, Biden wants it to be Ursula von der Leiden, Leiden, uh, not Ben Wallace. It is lots of different issues playing out there.
2: All right, let's have a go at trying to work out at the start of this week, what leads the news. Kerry, assuming you don't choose the BBC story because you can't choose the story you brought, what would you choose? I would choose cluster munitions because I think it because of what it means. Liz? BBC. Really? Because
0: yeah. Well, because it has led the news for three days. Uh Will. Um,
1: I'd probably give for BBC too. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Well, I will give
2: you my uh, run at it. Uh, I'm afraid, Liz, I think that NHS and pharma for Kerry's uh, smoke but no fire. um, Which was,
0: to be fair, the way I pitched it. I was not taken in by the smoke.
2: Yeah. No, but the question is, is that actually even the story of the NHS? Is collaboration with pharma the Mm. story of the NHS? It seems to me as though there are other ones. So for that reason, I think... It it runs at the bottom of the running order. I would run the BBC as second. And the reason for that is I don't think that you've got at the moment, even knowing what we know, a story that cuts to the heart of um, the structure and culture of an organization. And if anything, when I thought about it over the weekend, I thought this is one of those moments where you want to stand back and say – Look at the importance of the BBC, look at what it contributes nationally and internationally, and let's not get ourselves derailed by the conduct of one person or even a team of pe- people who were supposed to investigate. That's not to say this person hasn't done the wrong thing, if all the allegations are true. It's not to say that the BBC has managed it as you know quickly and competently as you would like. But it is likely to obscure the story about an organization that is about so much more than that. So it's one of those moments where actually I think you need to be reminded about the value of the BBC and you don't need to join the kind of raucous choir that's, you know, uh, baying at the BBC. But more than anything, I think this cluster munition story is hugely important and hugely important for reasons I think that should make us really uncomfortable. One, on the actual facts on the ground, the prospect that of another war leaving a whole detritus behind that is uh, deadly and ends, ends up killing people for years to come that have nothing to do in a... Sp- I hope in time, recovering from a war. Second, because this tension between the US and the EU, these fissures in the West over how best to arm Ukraine, keep coming back. And it seems to me they keep coming back because the West is not doing practically what it is doing rhetorically, which is arming Ukraine sufficiently to push back Russia. I thought your point, Will, about the fact that we are fascinated by F-16s and air power, but on the ground, people want to defend waves of infantry. That's really significant. I understand the practicality of it. But the reality is that what's happened is that the West has tried to take a Position that distinguishes itself from Russia. One of those distinctions was that Russia was using deadly cluster munitions, and the West decried it. Now we're being drawn in, and I think it gets back to that old military thing, which is clout don't dribble. If you want to go in and win a war, you have to have the military capability to do it. And until y- Ukraine does, we're going to keep on being drawn into these, uh, you know, ethical problems as well as kind of practical problems. So, for that reason, I think cluster munitions leads. Uh, Uh, Monday, 10th of July, Cluster Munitions, BBC, NHS and Big Pharma. That would be my running order. Thank you, Kerry. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Will, for joining us. Thank you uh, for listening. We'll be back at the end of the week uh, with a news meeting on Friday that tries to make sense of the week that was. But for now, have a very good week. Thanks so much for listening.
1: Tortoise.